Hello and welcome to Here's the Thing. I am Lauren Cardinal, your host, a board-certified hypnotherapist and results coach. And today I have joining me Dr. William Becker, who is a psychiatrist, uh, board-certified in child and adolescent and adult psychiatry. Um, Dr. Becker, I've asked to join me today because the topic today is anxiety and depression from the medical perspective. And I think it's something that we can all gain a little bit of a, of a we talk about anxiety, anxiety and depression and what we feel, how we feel it, and I think it's important to get the medical perspective to know what we're looking at or how we might be viewing it differently than a physician. So welcome, Dr. Becker. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So first of all, I know in our conversations in the past you have mentioned that as a First and foremost, it, it could be an important step to understand the difference between psychology and psychiatry, psychologists and psychiatrists. So I wonder if first we can start on that and then we can dive right into uh, the topic for today. Sure. Um, yeah, there, there, are, there are many different types of mental health professionals. Um, I'm a psychiatrist, so the, the distinction there is, is uh, that means I went to medical school and then I specialized in psychiatry and, and the, uh, the primary uh, differentiation of that for, from, say, a psychologist is that uh, it, it gives me the ability to prescribe medication as well as do therapy. So um, simply put, mm -hmm. that's the primary distinction that, that I, I can and often do do psychopharmacology. Okay. Um, great, great, great. Good to know. Good to know. And when... When would someone see, let's say there's a, a, a patient that comes to you that really doesn't want to necessarily have medication. It sounds like what you're saying is that you can provide the same services that a psychologist can, can provide. You just have the added benefit of being able to prescribe should it come to that. Uh, in essence, I mean, the, the different fields tend to have somewhat different training. And, and the, you know, I, I think ultimately if it comes down to the therapy, it's much less important whether you're a psychologist, psychiatrist, as, as to how good you are as a therapist, what sort of person you are. But in essence, as a psychiatrist, I mean, you start with with an evaluation of, of what is going on, and then you come up with um, what we call a differential diagnosis, and that leads to uh, treatment recommendations, which mm -hmm. uh, might or might not include a consideration of a medication. Okay, okay. So... That leads me right into the discussion of anxiety and depression um, in terms of treatment differentiation. But anxiety, I think that, I think in general, we, we as a whole, people, humans, citizens, have a very broad definition of what anxiety is, as well as depression, whether it's sadness or depressed feelings as opposed to depression. So I wonder if you could talk about each of those to delineate or clarify a little bit of, of that for us as, let's say, prospective patients. Um, I'll try. Okay. <laughs> yeah, great, great. Okay. Uh, well, let's take the two separate. I mean, depression and anxiety are frequently coexist, uh, and that's a much debated topic as to, to what that means. So, uh, you know, anxiety is kind of like pain, uh, from my view, which is it's something we all experience. It, it is, uh, in, in a sense, essential and necessary, uh, but past a certain point, 
guy typically is, um, his functional form is anticipation of something bad that might happen, which gives us the opportunity to plan and avoid, or thinking about something that did happen, and in the best of all worlds, learning from experience. Uh, what we typically refer to as an anxiety disorder uh, or, um, is when anxiety is uh, to a point that it is uh, uh, less functional, uh, and, and in its worst cases, uh, intrusive and even, even crippling to one's ability to function. And uh, so, you know, broadly speaking, um, you, you can't get any two people to uh, agree exactly on how, how you would define anxiety or depression, and, and the terms are used loosely. Uh, professionally, uh, anxiety is broken down into certain subtypes of anxiety disorders. Um, that goes back to a classification scheme we've had since about 1960. Uh, people may have heard of what's called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which was mm -hmm. an attempt uh, to, uh, you know, to have a, a, an agreement as to, to how we're going to define different disorders. But it's it's not like the Bible. It's not like, oh my God, that's what I have. It, it's a classification scheme that has that has a lot of benefits. I think the, the main benefits for anxiety are certain types of anxiety disorders we, we have at this point. Uh, pretty good treatment paradigms uh, that, so for example, obsessive compulsive disorder, we have specific uh, treatment paradigms that are effective for that and other ones are, are not. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so again, anxiety is something we, we all experience um, and uh, it, it warrants some sort of assessment or intervention if it's either very distressing the person or going up on the, the threshold if it's, you know, actually interfering with their life or in, uh, many cases can, can be just downright disabling. Um, so d depression again is, is a uh, you know it, it's it's a used in many different forms. When when you talk about depression clinically, we're usually talking about what we call major depressive disorder, which is the most severe form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's been described in literature going back thousands of years. Very similarly, it's certainly not something that that never existed before. Uh, Again, uh, our diagnostic scheme is, 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 as a clinician is based upon the, the, the DSM, uh, which is uh, you know, pretty much things like you'd expect. Uh, you have depression and you have trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, trouble with energy. It's a bit of a Chinese menu checklist uh, to mm -hmm. meet criteria. Mm -hmm. and there's obviously different levels of depression, and then with, with depression, uh, just pretty much anybody we see, we, we have to assess for possibility of a suicidal risk uh, um, and in terms of uh, treatment recommendations uh, for, for people we consider clinically depressed that would really kind of correspond to the, the level of depression as to what would be recommended mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so you know you know uh, everybody has good and bad days good and bad moments what we call depression broadly speaking is somebody who's um, in a, a deeper funk a longer funk um, uh, you know, more significant than, than the typical fluctuations we all experience, and then depression clinically is, is not at all uncommon. Um, uh, it's, it's unfortunately quite common. And it's and I think it's another em emotion that we all have felt or can feel at varied times. And it sounds well, like it. Yeah. And at least. I mean, the depression. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. 
I was just going to say, even from seeing some of the ads on television for medications for depression, they talk about um, what you said, the lack of being able to concentrate, just the not motivating, kind of that mask on pretending to be happy and not looking forward to anything in specific, but specifically, but still being able to quote unquote function. And I guess my question comes in more in at what point does something like that become more of a concern rather than just flowing through a, a cycle of an emotion, so to speak? In, um, you know, there's no exact cutoff. So, so um, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of people that we would all agree, you know, they're, they're feeling sad today, but it's, it's a normal sadness. Maybe there's an obvious trigger, a breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend or uh, uh, not getting a job. Uh, so so we, we would not classify somebody who's transiently or in a state of, of uh, feeling sad as somebody who's clinically depressed, clinically mm-hmm. depressed. Requires being a more not necessarily absolutely consistent state, but being mostly in a state of significantly lowered mood and um, uh, you know, often with uh, sleep disruption, appetite disruption, focus disruption, and in many cases, varying degrees of uh, suicidality. Uh, so the, the you know the, the threshold for for recommending uh, let's say a psychotherapeutic intervention would be you know, kind of subjectively distressed past a certain point that, that would seem to warrant uh, seeing somebody in there. There's multiple different types of psychotherapy mm-hmm. that can help people who are depressed. Um, mm-hmm. uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, type of psychodynamic therapy. Um, um, and typically, uh, you know, for many people, that's uh, all that is really needed. Um, recommendation for medication would happen if uh, depression is more severe, or if they have had a trial of um, more standard psychotherapy from like a good clinician and, and have not responded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so uh, recommendation medication again is uh, makes sense uh, if the severity is significant, and that's a you know not you know, there's some people who we all agree they they need to go on medication or they're suicidal or non-functional, and then there are people in a in a lower level of depression. Uh, the other thing that, for, for me, uh, plays into the decision to, to consider me- medication or not is it's, it's not a yes or no situation. It's, uh, psychopharmacology or any medication is really assessing the potential benefits of the medication versus the potential side effects of mm-hmm. medication. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I like to point out that when we treat cancer, the drugs used are extremely toxic, uh, but they're used because the alternative is worse. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. In, in psychiatry in the current day and age for depression we're forged in, in an era where most of the medications are really quite safe the side effects are uh, not dangerous uh, very little risk of permanent harm they're, they're generally very uh, safe drugs these days so, so, so that has what that, that goes back to uh, when Prozac was introduced I don't know if it was 20-30 years ago uh, it wasn't a more effective drug but it was a, a safer, better tolerated drug. But, uh, we had very effective antidepressants before, but they had tons of side effects, required blood monitoring, uh, mm. were lethal in overdose, and so we really only used those for severe depression. Since Prozac and uh, pretty much all the antidepressants subsequent, um, they've been used in milder cases because it's a, it's a risk-benefit assessment. It's, it's 
reasonable to try it in, in a lower grade depression because um, there's very low risk of significant harm. Um, so, so that plays into the decision on, on, on use of medications. Uh, so mm-hmm. that fortunately, we have medications that, that are by and large quite safe. Um, and it's my understanding, um, now, uh, of course, I'm saying this as a hypnotherapist, so I generally work with people to complement what a physician is already working with uh, a, pa- a patient for. But also, I know that even if someone does not want to be on medication at all, there are benefits. There are definitely benefits to the medication. And what I often explain to my clients is that if it's a matter of being on the medication to kind of get over that hump, that it can serve its its purpose, not to necessarily make every day, you know, bright and shiny, but just to to be able to manage life a little bit better. And I wonder, in those cases... It, what also comes to my mind is my understanding that the, um, the therapies, the medications, can take a few to several weeks to really get to their prime effectiveness. And with that, if somebody is looking for short-term duration just to get through, how does one meet with their physician to work their way off of that and establish that with you? Yeah, there was a lot in there. So, <laughs> all right. So, um, I guess I'll, I'll speak for me personally. Yeah, I, uh, the people who come to me, uh, I have what's called selection bias because most people are coming to me um, thinking that they're, if it's for depression or anxiety, that it's severe enough that, that they're considering medication. Um, so, most people walk in my door mm. are considering medication, or because I see children and adolescents, their, their parents are thinking it may, may be. Uh, time to consider that, and, and a significant percentage I, I, I wind up agreeing, certainly not all. Uh, um, so, so again, the, you know, there, there are different types of depression. What, 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 when we, what we call clinical depression is typically called major depression, which is a fairly serious disorder that, that can really disrupt lives and uh, untreated can, can go on for, for years and, and uh, carries an elevated risk of suicide for, for some people. So. Um, you know, if the decision is made that this is a depression that is, uh, for whatever reason, warrants a trial of medication and the, the person agrees, then uh, typically what we tell people is you have to get to a therapeutic dose of a medication, and it often takes about three weeks to get a response. Okay. That's true and not true. The, 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 the data shows that um, you do need to get to some sort of therapeutic level, and we, for some drugs we have a clearer idea of that than others. Um, but the three weeks is kind of a, a reasonable average. Some people respond quicker. Some people will take a longer time to respond. And many people will not respond to a specific medication or they might not tolerate it due to side effects. Uh, mm. uh, on the other hand, if people do have a nice response, if they're uh, clinically depressed, then the standard recommendation is, is if it's their first depression, to stay on it once they feel better for about a year. Uh, it's not signing in blood. But mm-hmm. data shows mm-hmm. that, that people who, on average, uh, uh, discontinue the, the drug too early have a higher tendency to relapse back into the depression. So okay. That's more makes or less sense. the protocol. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I know as a hypnotherapist, I have my, my scope of practice, and if somebody, if it is my, um, my feeling through the, the, the GAF score that someone is beyond my scope of practice, then I would refer to um, a psychiatrist or psychologist just for that therapeutic part of it. In terms of, let's say, continuing working with somebody that is experiencing major depressive disorder or anxiety and is being treated, as a hypnotherapist, how would someone, me or someone like me, best support the work that you're doing with the patient? Well, uh, it, it depends. Me, personally, I, I do both psychotherapy and psychopharmacology. The realities of, of, of the era of since managed care is uh, a lot of people will split the treatment, so they will see a psychologist or a social worker or a hypnotherapist for the, the therapy and come to the pharmacologist as for medication. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. is increasingly common. Um, again, I, I do both, but I, I probably at this point the, the bulk of my practice is, is more just the medication and because uh, insurance is, is covering it less, uh, and that's changed mm -hmm. a lot of it. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, in, in, the, in the, the ideal world, there, there's an ongoing collaboration between um, all, all the players uh, in, in the real world. That, that doesn't always play out as well as we'd like because people are busy. Uh, but uh, the ideal situation is to be a collaboration, and, and lots of data shows that uh, you know, collaboration and, and, and combining the, the treatments is more effective than uh, one alone. Um, and uh, uh, so it, it, Okay. Good. That's good to know. Very good. Um, I'm going to bring up something just because it's been part of past shows, past conversations that um, I've had and just through reading. And to get a little bit more into the, the body, the medical part of it, um, and the brain, the it's my understanding through reading and conversations, obviously, that we have the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain, and the left hemisphere is, to summarize it very quickly, is more about um, thinking forward and looking back, and the right brain, the right hemisphere is more about being in the present. And I guess the first question is, would you agree with that quick summation? And the second part would be, if that is correct, then is anxiety more of a left brain issue and practicing getting into the right hemisphere more beneficial? Okay. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you my point of view. I wouldn't mm -hmm. at all say it's a universal one. That, that, you know, there are, are clearly both anatomical and functional differences between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere. Um, you know, I, I, I would say, broadly speaking, that um, uh, our understanding uh, of, of the brain uh, in terms of how it functions vis-a-vis thought and dreaming, mood disorder, is still um, more or less at the black box. Um, mm -hmm. You'll mm -hmm. tons of research, tons of publication, but we, we fundamentally do not understand most of the processes. Uh, none of us can say specifically what is going on in the brain uh, that correlates with depression or anxiety. There's tons of material published, but um, uh, in terms of uh, definitive knowledge of the underlying 
uh, stuff that's going on in the brain, we just don't know. And, and one of my pet peeves is, is many patients are told by the doctors that they, they are being treated for a chemical imbalance. And the truth is we don't know if there's a chemical imbalance. And, and it's very clear that it's not just uh, a simple, you have too much or too little serotonin, that that, that model it, it just does not hold water. Uh, mm. So, you know, I, I, I tend to be of the view, and I think it's <laughs> true, that uh, there's much more we don't know than we do know about how the brain functions. And that, that actually mm-hmm. contributes to one of the problems we have in pharmacology, which is that uh, a lot of pharmaceutical industries have severely cut back on research and development in uh, psychiatric drugs and, and uh, I've spoken to some people fairly high up and, and the reason is fairly straightforward that because the, the basic pathology is not understood and the basic functioning of the brain is not understood, they, they're kind of shooting blind on research so they, they can spend billions of dollars and not come up with a treatment. So they've, they've kind of for the moment decided to, to put their R&D in, into other spheres where mm-hmm. they have better models of pathology. Which mm-hmm. is, uh, yeah. understandable but, but unfortunate from, from my perspective sure uh, sure that makes sense and I know just from my previous work in medical education that there is so much that is spent in the research and development of the medications by the time they actually make it to market um, just as you said billions of dollars have been spent that it would make sense and be of um, more of a rather than just a, a commercial stance, it makes sense to be able to have a def- more of a definitive pathway for the research and development than, as you say, shooting into the black box and not really knowing. Well, so, yeah. yeah. Well, we, we, we would all love to know more. <laughs> that, would, that would give us better tools. But it, uh, it's, you know, I think we're probably still decades away from, from having a a, a reasonable understanding of the brain. Uh, mm-hmm. Others might disagree, but I, I think it's a tendency to think we're, we're close to understanding it, but I, I just don't think that's accurate. Uh, um, the tools are improving, and uh, but, but we're, we're still fairly primitive in, in our knowledge. It's, it's an unbelievably complicated organ. It's, it's difficult to access. You can't cut it open. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Many limitations. Uh, so, so pretty much any study has to be through animal models or uh, indirect assays such as a, a CT scan or a PET scan or uh, blood work, which, which are very indirect ways of studying. Uh, one of the many limitations of, of trying to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. There's so much that I, I feel like we have learned, and there's that, as you said, there's so much that we we still don't know. We still don't know, and that we're the the species that is actually trying to know more about it, that we're analyzing our own brains. It's just, it's fascinating. It's all very fascinating it is, to it me. Is. Uh, and it's important to clarify that, that even if we, we don't for sure know the mechanisms, how the, the medications work, um, there are ways, there are things called double-blind placebo-controlled studies that mm-hmm. can uh, show that the medications are effective and that there, there is a lot that has been written about those studies and, and whether they're really conclusive or not. I am certainly of the opinion that the medications we have do work. They certainly don't work for everyone, and uh, I'd be thrilled if we can come up with newer and better mechanisms uh, and, and medications. But uh, you know, even if we don't understand uh, much about the, the actual underlying pathology, we can still have a medication that is effective, and, and you can prove that by 
uh, comparing a drug to, to a placebo in, in uh, studies where no one knows who's getting rich until the, the end of the study and then you see the relative rate of response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, one of the conundrums is that the response to placebo is typically quite high. Uh, typically you need, uh, you don't get a huge increase in response to the drugs and most of us in the field feel that's probably uh, because the, the medications are probably more effective in more severe depression, though I, I would not say that's a, a universal position. But mm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And do you, from your perspective, your experience, your knowledge, your understanding, um, all of your, your training, is it your understanding or do you feel that prolonged anxiety or stress for that matter leads or can lead to depression or major depressive disorder? Well, I, I think so. Uh, I mean, what we see over and over is uh, people come in with symptoms of both anxiety and depression, and there's been thousands and thousands of articles and books written on what the meaning of that is. My own personal take on it is I think if you have anxiety that's severe enough that uh, makes you miserable, you're going to wind up being depressed. And usually in those cases, if you can um, ameliorate the anxiety, the depression will also get better. But uh, yeah, the, the truth is everybody who comes in that we categorize as, say, anxious or even a specific type of anxiety or depressed uh, is not necessarily exactly the same person. The, 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 the genetics are, are certainly not well understood, but the, the, the data is pointing out that these are hundreds of genes involved in, in these disorders, uh, and, and that, uh, in a sense, it may be that everybody walks in the door as a different person that we're treating. Uh, uh, but yeah, I, I would say that for anxiety, I think, uh, without doubt, uh, people are made miserable by their anxiety are almost universally depressed to some degree, and uh, my approach typically in this depression is quite severe, is, is to, to try to target the anxiety. But the truth is that the medication that are used for anxiety and depression, is that there's a lot of overlap, so often it's the same medication for, for both problems. Uh, mm. uh, mm-hmm. That's interesting, because in my mind I'm thinking of them, I, I know they're often lumped together or they, they coexist, the anxiety and depression, but I think of them as two different experiences, yet what you're saying is sometimes the medication would overlap. Is that correct? Uh, yes, so so uh, the standard medications for depression are called antidepressants, and uh, let's say if a, if a drug kind of comes up with a, a new drug and they want to get it approved by, by the uh, FDA, then they have to uh, go through several stages. Uh, the, the final stage is what's called a stage three trial, where they have to demonstrate two things. One, that the medication is safe enough, and, and two, that it it has a separation from placebo that it's effective enough. Mm-hmm. And then it is called an antidepressant. And most drug companies know that there's a bigger market for antidepressant and anxiety, so they will uh, first get an FDA indication for depression, and then they will try it in other things. And many of our modern antidepressants are also effective for many types of anxiety. They're called antidepressants. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and again, they're called antidepressant because that's the first thing that they're demonstrated and approved for. Uh, but what they are most commonly are drugs that bind to receptors for the, the neurotransmitter serotonin, or serotonin, norepinephrine. Mm-hmm. And, and after they bind to those receptors, we're uh, still trying to figure out what happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's mm-hmm. very complicated and poorly understood. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, for anxiety, um, an- another large class of drugs that, that we use are called the benzodiazepines, uh, which, which are very different. There are drugs like Xanax or Valium, uh, which are taken, uh, diminish anxiety, and then um, go out of your system. And uh, the large issue with them, of course, is they're potentially drugs that can be abused or, or develop a dependence. So uh, their, their utilization is... is mm-hmm. uh, or specific situations than anxiety, um, uh, and they're, they're not used as antidepressants, but um, they can be used as, as adjunctive medications if, because as I said, many people are depressed or also quite anxious. Uh, another point I wanted to get back to is that I, you know, I see a lot of people who are very nervous, especially if they're anxious about going on medication, and uh, uh, worried what the medications might do to them, and there is just a lot of data showing that um, an untreated depression or untreated anxiety or high degree of stress has adverse effects on the body. So, so it's so we'll frequently mm-hmm. try to make the argument that, that uh, you know, from what we know, the medications are, when used properly, quite safe versus an untreated depression anxiety going on. It, you know, tends to elevate the risk of heart disease and, and many other things uh, aside from just the quality of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people are anxious are very, very anxious also about medication. Mm-hmm. So that can be a, a difficult obstacle to overcome. Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because we do talk about that on, on the show and the different conversations about how stress and um, stress in particular can affect the body in, in a variety of ways, but the anxiety and depression can too. And then that adds to what you were saying about the benefit versus the the side effects or what the the medications can cause because there's there's more than just the anxiety and depression at stake there's the physical part of it as well uh potentially and uh but you know even even yes for sure mm-hmm. um uh, you know the the uh you know, anxiety past a certain point or depression past a certain point is, you know, can either make one miserable or can make one non-functional or in severe cases, uh, suicide risk. So, so it's, uh, you know, there, there are many people with milder anxiety or mild depression who really uh, I would not be recommending medication for. But again, um, for, from a pharmacologist's point of view, it, it is... Um, often a difficult sell, especially to, to anxious people, and it's unfortunate because uh, medications are, by and large, when, when used properly, uh, safe. They are not always effective, but uh, they have a, a, a very good chance of being beneficial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about the the effects on the body of stress and anxiety and depression, and a thought that came to my mind that I'd love for some some of your perspective or your um, some clarification on how you view stress and anxiety differently in terms of let's say a patient comes to you and says oh I've, I've got a lot of anxiety um, I wonder if how much of it is um, really stress and how you decipher that well, it's a, it's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure that I can answer it, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll talk about it. So stress is, is uh, you know, obviously part of life, and stress and anxiety are, uh, I think, in 
frequently used as it's fairly synonymous descriptors. Uh, uh, people have studied stress. Specifically, many people have all signs of study stress. What, what is stress? What are things that are more or less stressful? How to characterize stress? Uh, again, from a psychiatric perspective, we have now, for good and for bad, mostly for good, a, a manual that sub-characterizes certain types of anxiety disorders. And that may not be answering your question, but certain types of anxiety disorders, such as obsessive compulsive disorder, or uh, probably the best example, um, are uh, important to, to diagnose and to recognize because uh, there are just very specific interventions that are effective and really nothing else is. Uh, mm. uh, I would also say that virtually all the people with um, depression or anxiety have stress and frequently, um, you know, I, I think it's very possible when we change our diagnostic schema that we may change it to something like having to do with uh, stress resiliency. Resiliency is a, a term we, we uh, use a lot these days. Uh, mindfulness is a term. Mm-hmm. Um, medications have limits, so uh, people are trying to bring in other uh, avenues to help, and, and things like mindfulness and stress reduction is all good. Um, mm-hmm. So there's no question. And, and certainly, I would say, um, especially in anxiety, but certainly in some mood disorders, uh, uh, another way just to think about these people is they have difficulty with stress resiliency or stress responsiveness. Uh, a lot of anxious people become stressed and then go into an avoidance mode, which is a, uh, trying to avoid the immediate stress but uh, has the unfortunate consequence. It's kind of like procrastination. It, it, you know, do the assignment right now, but <laughs> mm. the pressure builds over mm-hmm. time and, and does not tend to go away. Uh, it's, it's a maladaptive but understandable technique that we, we all do to varying degrees. Uh, um, but yeah, stress is, is um, uh, you know, on, the, on the other hand, um, let's say for, for depression, uh, uh, the current paradigm is, is to, to not to, to discount stress, but, but to treat more to the symptoms. If the person's symptoms warrant the diagnosis of a, a clinical depression, then mm-hmm. we, we recommend treating and, and pastimes, and, and this is often a, more of a philosophical or political position, depending on where the field is at, that they may have said, well, if it's in the context of an understandable stress, wait, and, and clinicians certainly have the, uh, the ability to, to um, adjust their thinking, depending on situations as to uh, what sort of interventions to recommend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in terms of, um, let's say, stress reduction, mindfulness, um, it sounds like those are two things that, in terms of stress, that you would discuss as options for your patients outside of um, medication. What are some of the other treatment options that you talk about with, with patients outside of medication? Well, I, I, I tend to, to think that uh, approach these problems is... Uh, we can either work with people um, internally, which, which has to do with either uh, some sort of psychotherapeutic intervention or psychopharmacology, mm-hmm. or externally by, by trying to understand what is stressing them, what in their environment is difficult for them, and to whatever degree we can modify it. I, I, I see a lot of teenagers who are stressed by school, mm-hmm. and, and I'm consistently frustrated 
and how little ability I can change the stresses they have. And there's a tremendous pressure on kids to get good grades, to uh, get into AP classes, to get into top schools, and uh, uh, there are many kids for whom that's uh, uh, difficult to, to manage. Uh, and, and, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in terms of you know, different clinicians have, have different sort of ways they're trained, different philosophies, um, uh, and again, mindfulness and that sort of uh, approach, I, I would say, has become very popular, and I think for, for, for a good reason. It's it's, uh, it's a useful adjunct. It goes back thousands of years and uh, has proven benefits. Uh, won't necessarily cure a, a severe depression, but mm-hmm. um, it will certainly help anxiety and, and uh, you know, any anything that can lessen pain and suffering is, is good. Sure, sure. Things like getting sleep under control is essential if possible. Um, uh, exercise is shown to be quite beneficial, um, but it's often a catch-22 as a depressed person, <laughs> too depressed to exercise. Mm, mm-hmm. But, it, you know, many of these mm-hmm. al- alternative strategies for, for milder situations, if the person can do them, can, can be quite effective. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. Good, good studies on exercise and in particular, and... Uh, uh, a lot of studies being done on, on various yoga techniques and breathing techniques. Uh, sure. But, you know, they're, they're not going to be fully effective for somebody who's got a really severe disorder. That's right. kind of what separates when, when you absolutely have to go to medication. Uh, you know, it's, yeah, that, uh, and that makes sense. You know, and it's, um, I'm glad that you mentioned about the teens because that was something else. That, that was actually my, my next question. Because I know as a hypnotherapist, I've been seeing quite a few more more um, clients in their teen years with the, the stresses and the anxiety. And you just commented that you're seeing them more as well. And I kind of wanted to get your, your take on that of, are you actually experiencing that, which you agreed that you are? And... Just is there a different way that you might approach um, teens or have different questions for teens necessarily than adults in moving forward and how to progress? Is that a fair question? Um, yeah, very fair but complicated. So, so uh, you know, it, it depends on, on, on the age and, and the location. I mean, teens, are, are 12-year-olds, very different from a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old and 18-year-old in mm-hmm. terms of their cognitive abilities, their, their emotional maturity, and they're very different from children. There's a, uh, typically, uh, the, the primary thing that separates uh, a teenage depression from an adult depression is it's more uh, situational sensitive. So many teenagers will, will say, when I'm with my friends, I'm happy, but when I'm in school, I'm miserable, or when I'm with my parents, I'm miserable. It's a, uh, versus uh, most adult depressions, that would certainly not all are, uh, you know, they're just depressed all the time. So mm-hmm. it's uh, mm-hmm. uh, an important distinction. Um, yeah, I, I would say that I and, and most of us, uh, and I think a lot of days supporting it, feel kids are under a lot more stress, and uh, we're, we're seeing a lot uh, of the fallout of that. I think the, the expectations, especially in uh, upscale communities in, in northern Jersey where I live, is, is uh, to me out of control. And, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, one one way it's been described is that uh, it, 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 the modern world is a mismatch for for our genes, our, our, our genetic <laughs> makeup. Um, 
was evolved under hunter-gatherers, and um, many kids are arguably, and we have no means of testing this, but, but theoretically it makes sense. Uh, not everybody is by nature inclined to sit in school for eight hours, pay mm -hmm. attention very hard, go home, and then do another two, three hours of homework. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, it's not the natural state of being, and many people, I was fortunate one of them could do that very well, and I, I see a lot of people who struggle on that, and then it's very difficult because if you don't do well at that, then you're viewed by society as a failure, and, and that almost always uh, damages self-esteem and, and certainly escalates the rate of anxiety and depression. So mm -hmm. I, I absolutely believe there's too much pressure on kids now, but I, I don't see that lessening, unfortunately. So. I'm into that. I absolutely agree. And uh, I look at some of the things that kids these days are handling and just marvel and, and wonder wonder what the effects will be down the road. I can't help but wonder what what they'll be dealing with, how they'll be feeling, and how that how what they're dealing with now will affect them. But that's part of part of their journey and the learning and um, it's good that we have people like you and me to assist them along the way, hopefully, um, and help them out in that capacity in whatever way fits them the best. So a lot, a lot of discussion here. Uh, I find my, my mind is continuing to percolate on what you've, what you've mentioned, all we've talked about. And um, I want to thank you for, for being on the show today. Dr. William Becker, board certified child and adolescent and adult psychiatrist. And Dr. Becker, for more information or if somebody wants to reach out to you to make an appointment or to follow up with you, how would they? How is it best to reach you? Um, I would say, let me give one number because that will be simpler. I, I have two different offices, but I'll give the number one of my offices, and, and that would be 201-670-4075. Probably should say up front that I'm, I'm not a participant in any insurance plan, so, but, you know, if people want to call and ask for... Uh, advice, I'd like to be happy to, to try to steer them in the right direction. Great. Um, but, um, so that's, uh, with that number, you can reach me, but I, I do have two different offices, but just use one, one number for now. Great. 201-670-4075. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. appreciate the information, your perspective, and, um, and you agreeing to, to meet with me and to talk about this very important subject matter. Thank you yeah, very much. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, anytime. Take care, and uh, I'll look forward to catching up again soon. Me too. Look forward to it. Thank you. Bye. You're welcome.